Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start today, though, with back to school next week. So kids getting everything ready for back to school. Got your calculator. You got your pen and paper. Of course, you got your cell phone. Every kid has a cell phone. The question today, should cell phones be banned in the classroom? Got Tara Hull standing by to discuss. Have a listen to UBC psychology professor Shimmy Kang here. Uh, she believes cell phones, are, cell phones are bad in the classroom. Here's what she has to say. Cell phone use in general is linked to uh, increasing rates of anxiety, depression, body image disturbance, sleep deprivation, uh, reduction of social skills, including the most basic of empathy. Uh, we see problems with even neck and posture and back pain. Okay. Well, if you talk to a lot of teachers, and I've talked to many of them too, uh, they'll tell you that kids also just do poorly and they're unfocused if they have access to their phone in class. So here's the question today. Should cell phones be banned in the classroom everywhere in British Columbia. Let's discuss now with my guest, Tara Hull. Tara is an education advocate, and I'm very pleased to welcome her back. Tara, thank you for coming on today. Oh, you're welcome, Mike. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. I appreciate it. And we take a look at what's going on at Belmont Secondary School near Victoria on the island. They have brought in some tightened up cell phone rules here now. So when a kid at that school enters a classroom, you must put that phone away. There'll be a basket at the front of the classroom, put your phone in there for the duration of the class, or or you got to keep the phone zipped up in your backpack. You're not allowed to use the phone during class. Do you think that is the rule, that rule should be, every, do you support that rule? Do you think it makes sense? I 100% support this rule. In fact, I think it should go a little further, that they shouldn't even be allowed on school grounds. But I think this is ah. a really valuable first step, um, because anybody that suggests that cell phones have a place in uh, the classroom really isn't serious about educating our youth. Um, they have no understanding about how a child learns or how distracting phones and screens are. And um, teachers should not be the ones that are, should be policing this. This should be um, an all-out, you know, district-wide ban, if not a province ban. Yeah, and right now it seems like we have a bit of a patchwork of rules. Like some schools, some school districts have rules that, okay, you're not allowed to look at the phone during class unless you're getting some, it's an emergency or something like that, of course. But other schools don't seem to have very many rules at all, right? Right, right, yeah. So why why is that? I mean, we have a you know a province uh, just announced a couple weeks ago that they're going to put in you know a couple million dollars to a food program in schools, which really has um, you know when you can consider that versus you know the social well-being and the distraction that cell phones bring you know to the classroom, where's the priorities here? 
Um, and it, it would take nothing for the province just to mandate that cell phone use be banned. Just we've seen, you know, recently in other news in Quebec, they've done a province-wide mm. ban. Ontario has somewhat of a ban, um, not, you know, not allowing, you know, cell phones in the classroom. That's up to the teacher's discretion. Um, and there, what are we waiting for here in B.C.? Yeah, I and mean, you take a look at some other countries as well. Like, in, didn't France ban cell phones in the classroom there years ago? Right. Right, and they've done that in Spain. And, you know, even further, there were studies done, you know, maybe even like seven or eight years ago. It was conducted by, um, you know, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. And basically what they just found out is that um, there, it, the study shows that there's no single country in which the Internet is used frequently at school by a majority of students where students' performance improved. Um, but besides mm-hmm. that, the other reason that, you know, we have to really take a really hard look at um, why cell phones need to be out of schools is the fact that it also distracts um, from good behavior in the classroom. Um, it leads to increased bullying. And the biggest thing that parents really need to hone in on is that they become addicted to screens. Now, is this healthy for kids? My answer is no. Yeah, those are some great points. Speaking of Tara Hool, education advocate, should cell phones be banned in all BC classrooms? Let's listen to some more from UBC psychology prof Shimmy Kang here. And you'll, she's a big supporter of, she feels the same way as you, Tara, on this, that cell phones should not be available to kids in class. Here's what she has to say. Studies show that when cell phones are banned or limited, uh, we see improved attention, we see better grades, we see better sense of school community, Uh, teachers are less frustrated in general. Yeah, and we're going to open the phone lines here after the break, and I I hope we hear from some teachers, because I would love to hear from teachers on this, how they they feel about this. Now, Now, she makes the argument there, Tara, that studies have shown that kids just do better in class, they do better in school when they don't have that phone. Every single them. study will show exactly the same thing as what you're, um, you know, what she's been saying. There, yeah. There's nothing, there's nothing that shows the positive impact of cell phones in the classroom. So why, why do we have them there? Well, okay, well, I mean, we all, we all have phones these days, and we're all kind of, I don't know, a lot of people are. I'm looking at mine all the time. I, I admit it. And yeah. you know, you're a grown up. <laughs> well, yeah, and I'm okay. a grown up, and we ha- we're dealing with preteen brains as well as teenage brains, and you know the the research is in about how detrimental this really is. So um, again, it's something that we we can make that excuse um, for you know maybe for ourselves. And to your point, we can't stop looking at them. So how could we possibly expect a child? you know, to stop looking at them throughout the course of the day. And this is where the grown-ups really do need to take charge and insist that when it comes to learning, there's no place for them in schools. Okay, now your point about that you would even go further with a ban on school property in general. Right. I I imagine, like, I think the the ban in the classroom is reasonable and makes a lot of sense, but... What about between classes at lunchtime or you got to phone your parents or to come pick you up at school, whatever the case may be? I mean, kids, every kid has a cell phone these days, and I, I think they need, they need the phone. I don't know. Why, would, why do you think it should be banned on school property, period? I don't know um, why a preteen needs a cell phone. Um, we also have a, a lot of uh, phones at the school office. And quite frankly, if a child is in school, um, there's no reason why anybody needs to contact them because they're in school. It's incredibly disruptive to a child through the course of the day to be interrupted with the constant pings on their phone. And let's be honest, we have all forms of, you know, poor behavior, which is now, you know, out of control, um, you know, with um, these kids because of the fact that we have the anxiety is going through the roof, the bullying is going Mm. through the roof. Porn addiction is a huge issue right now with teenagers as well as preteens. That's going through the roof. So um, there's really no pluses here about having them in the, in the schools, period. Um, but as I said earlier, I think 
you know, that's something that we should probably look at doing long term. I think if we had at least some form of a ban keeping them out of the classrooms, I think that's a great first step. Okay. Well, we're certainly seeing a trend in that direction. Tara, thank you for coming on today. You're welcome. Thank you, Mike. Talk about this distorted and unaffordable housing market in Metro Vancouver now for people looking to buy a first-time home buyer in the market. Like a lot of people have just given up. I've talked to especially younger people who said they've just given up in any thought about being able to afford to buy a place. Just unaffordable, impossible. Okay, so what about renting then? Well, you take a look at the rents. Rents have gone through the roof and it's very difficult for people to find a decent, affordable place to rent right now as well. I've been talking a lot about this on the show uh, this week. Got Margareta Dovgal standing by to discuss as well. Now, have a listen to, okay, <laughs> Paul Kershaw, he always uh, gets the, the listeners riled up, I'm telling you, because of his idea for a home equity tax. All right, so the idea is, you own a home valued at a million dollars or more, you could pay an annual tax on that home, use the money to build affordable housing. Have a listen to what he has to say. Paul Kershaw. That's like a large pot of gold. That isn't a nest egg. That is a wealth windfall. You know, if I'd accumulated that half million dollars over 10, 15 years of work, then great is my savings. But this is, only, yeah. this is happening in our housing system, and we're tolerating it. And we are, we're saying, oh, that housing, that person who's nesting now just grew and grew and grew, and they're counting on it, and that that should be somehow not open for any further conversation. Okay, my guest is Margareta Dovgal. Margareta is a housing advocate. Very pleased to welcome her back. Margareta, thank you for coming on today. Great to be here, Mike. Okay, so what do you think of this idea, first of all? This idea that the only real answer here is we have a real estate market in which all this equity has been locked up by like a baby boomer, boomer generation that are sitting on a mountain of, a mountain of equity wealth. And that's what you have to tap into. Put a, a modest, like he describes it as a modest tax annual and use that to build affordable housing. What do you think? Well, I think politically, it's bad news running on that kind of proposal of dinging Canadians for owning property. I think it would be kind of like running on a platform of kicking puppies and kittens. Uh, so politically, a risky gamble when a very large part of our population, more than most places in the world, actually owns homes. But, you know, more pragmatically, we simply can't tax our way out of a housing shortage. The logic just isn't there to support it. Income taxes are already very high in Canada, and that compounds in a particularly pernicious way with high housing costs. So so taxing those who own right now would send a really chilling signal for folks who want to build more homes. And that's a very bad, very damaging thing unless the federal government is willing to wave a magic wand and massively increase everyone's taxes in order to afford the price of replacing all the lost private investment uh, that would occur. Uh, so instead of scheming to find more tax revenues, why don't we just allow everyone who wants to build homes to solve this housing crisis by actually building those homes uh, rather than you know seeking to extract more from Canadians who are already spending unprecedented amounts to keep up with housing costs, whether you rent or you own, all levels of government can actually work together to flip a switch at effectively zero cost to governments and to taxpayers to enable more to get built. Look, I, I agree with Paul on a lot of stuff. Uh, his mm-hmm. points about intergenerational inequity are correct. They're important. Uh, and reversing the damaging trend that we have, this gap between homes needed and homes well, being built widening every year, is the only way we 
fix the challenges that are being faced by an entire generation of Canadians. Okay, let me ask you about that generational gap here, because you're a young person, and we've we've talked a lot about this as well. And and he made, I think, a pretty compelling argument on the show yesterday about how the system has just fundamentally changed. So for people who own a home right now, maybe they're boomers, maybe they're retired, getting near retirement, and they're sitting on a home that's worth a, a million dollars or more, you know, a lot of people will say, look, I scrimped and saved and I worked hard to to save up a down payment to buy that home. And I worked hard all my life. And I get that. I understand it. But he pointed out that in past generations, you could save up for a down payment on a middle middle class salary. And in a few years, you could scrape together the down payment for a typical home. Not anymore. Right. You can't do that anymore. Not in Vancouver. I think he said it takes like would take like 27 years for the person making the medium in, in, median income in Vancouver to save up for a down payment. He's got a point, doesn't yeah. he? Your thoughts? Well, it's bang on. Yeah, There's an entire yeah. generation, uh, I'm one of them, being left behind by abject cross-jurisdictional failure of leadership. Um, but I don't think the solution is to punish people who were born in a different era, uh, who were dealing with a different market and uh, different economic opportunities. Um, we can actually fix this problem without punishing anyone. Uh, we can fix this problem by building, building, building. And that's, I think, really, really good politics. Uh, rather than you know trying to find ways to hit people uh, who you know, maybe fortune favored them a little bit. So they were able to get into the housing market or they scrimped and they saved. Uh, we can create a, a situation where we're building at the pace that we need to. Uh, okay. And I really, really like what we're hearing from other places around the world right now uh, and even within Canada. So curious uh, to see if there's solutions there that Paul's not considering. Let's play another clip from him. So this is Paul Kershaw from UBC on yesterday's show saying that the boomer generation needs to help the younger generation. Have a listen. We need our politicians not to talk to younger folks who are getting locked out so much, but to talk to older homeowners, baby boomer homeowners in particular, and say, you got to get off the sidelines and start helping to be part of the solution. Like, you need to get some skin in the game to restore housing affordability for those who follow in your footsteps. Oh, okay. That is your legacy. Okay. So, yeah, all you boomers there who own your homes, you better pay up here and, and help these younger gener- younger kids. I think I think most homeowners, Margareta, for your thoughts, they probably already they're already helping their own kids, right? They're helping their own kids, I think, largely. But should they help other people's kids? Yeah, they they can do that. And and this is actually an appeal to anyone who owns a home. If you want to see the problem be fixed, support municipal governments and political parties that want to build more homes. Uh, I don't think making the issue about taxation is going to fix anything. It's just going to build animosity and going to make the types of solutions that we need more and more challenging to deliver. Uh, But yeah, everyone should be voting for parties that not only recognize the problem, but also take a pragmatic, sensible approach that we know is going to work because the problem we have today is because we haven't built. How do we know, though, that if we build all this new supply... And it's interesting to listen to politicians basically across the political spectrum kind of talking about we need to build more stuff. I mean, Trudeau is talking about densification. Pierre Polyev's talking build, build, build. Um, BC Premier David Eby has talked about building more. So everyone's sort of saying the sort of same thing. We have to build more stuff. But if we build, 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 how do we know that what we build will be affordable? Like, won't it still be unaffordable for most people? 
it's not a solution that will work immediately. Uh, these things take a while to to really get into effect. But if we look at the nature of the problem we have right now, uh, it's not people arbitrarily setting prices at an unattainable level. Uh, it's actually just a consequence of supply and demand. You know, not to get too technical, but it's just economics. It's market economics that's contributing to the problem that we have. Not contributing, it's causing it. Um, so if we know that's the problem, the solution has to be resolving the supply crunch. And we have the supply crunch because municipal governments for many generations have said no more. We don't want anything built. In the 1970s in Vancouver, there was a huge movement to uh, stop building new stuff. And uh, decades later, we're paying the price for that now. Uh, I'm with you there that uh, when when we make new policy moves, uh, when we change the pace, uh, it's not going to be an immediate effect that's going to fix everything for everyone. But if we look at other places where like California, for example, where they've made an effort to fix this problem by building more, uh, the average price of homes does start to go down. It starts to bridge that gap intergenerationally okay. where people who aren't in the market can't get into the market because things are just too expensive and they're too scarce. All right, we're talking the housing crunch with Margareta Dovgal and we got lots of phone calls. Rick and Mission. Hi, Rick. Go ahead. Oh, good morning, Mike. Uh, well, I've a couple of points. Firstly, I have, an, I, I think, a better idea. Uh, you know, people have been paying rent to... To uh, people that uh, you know, like mortgage helpers, and then uh, they pay all this rent. They help them people buy their property, but they get nothing in return. So I think there should be like a, a credit given to renters, uh, for instance, when they leave or something, so they can buy something. So they're paying all this money into you know giving people, and they get nothing back. You know, I mean they. They pay all this money, and the other person makes a lot of money, buys new property, rents it out, yeah. and they can't buy anything. So I think that's a better idea. You get a certain amount of credit uh, if you live in a place for a certain amount of time because you've been paying their mortgage. Or Thank you, Rick. Thank you, Rick, for the call. Well, I wonder if we might see a proposal or a promise along those lines from Justin Trudeau as we get closer to an election because... Right now, Trudeau appears to be bleeding support, among, especially among younger voters, a lot of whom are renters. And I wonder if he's going to come along with an offer of money money for for renters. Let's go to another call. John in Vancouver. Hi, John. What do you think? I think, like, the last caller is, you know, kind of out of his mind. We should get points yeah. because we rented, you know? Yeah. Like, I, I'm, you know, I pay enough tax. We don't need to pay any more tax. Um it's just like, where do we draw the line? Like I've worked hard and wh why can't people, you know, we also, we talk about how all these places are it's so unaffordable in, in Vancouver. See, I have a plumbing and heating company. And when I grew up, I couldn't live in Vancouver cause I couldn't afford it. So I lived out in Surrey and I made my way into town every day. Why does everybody got to live in Vancouver? Why don't they live out of the city a little ways where it is a little bit more affordable. That's what I had to yeah. do. Why don't they have to do it? Well, th th John, thank you for the call. Well, I would stress the little bit more affordable because if you take a look at rents or home prices throughout the whole the whole region, I mean, Margareta, you tell me. I mean, all around Metro Vancouver, the prices are ridiculous. I mean, it used to be you could move out to the Tri Cities or the Valley or, or Surrey or something. Now, even those cities are unaffordable for a lot of people. But your thoughts? 
That's right. It's a brutal situation. And uh, I fully agree with John that uh, we shouldn't be asking uh, anyone to be paying more. Uh, You know, there's a certain element of choice here. People who are able to uh, make a choice to structure their lives so that they can find something more affordable that makes sense with their income. That's great. But uh, from a policy perspective, uh, governments have really failed on all levels, and they've less left all of us to pay for that in a variety of ways. Uh, homeowners' children who go out there and rent struggle. Uh, they can barely make it work. <laughs> uh, you know, parents are tapping into their savings during reverse mortgages to enable their kids to get into the market. It's not a good situation to yeah. be in, uh, but we can build a way out of it. That's really what I'm saying, and uh, I think yeah. that's where the solution needs to be. Brian in Surrey. Hi, Brian. Go ahead. Hey, good morning to you and your guest. Uh, I couldn't agree more. I guess I'm on that bubble of the boomer generation. And I will say, I remember uh, my getting a 9% interest rate down from 12 when I renegotiated. So don't tell me that, you know, it's it's just that. I do have a daughter who's in that other generation. And I will say they have, and now I'm sounding like an old guy, but they have a different mindset. I never had, there weren't iPhones, but I didn't have the latest iPhone. I didn't have the latest car. I didn't have the latest TV. I struggled to make our payments. We didn't go on holidays. And yes, I own a home. I pay a lot of tax on that home. And I agree with your caller that the way, sorry, your, your guest, the way to get out of this is build more. And how will that happen? Less taxes, less municipal taxes, less provincial taxes, less federal taxes on building. Look at the amount yeah. of percentage. Ask, talk to builders. They pay in tax or a tax portion of the new builds. That's the way we get yeah. out of this. Okay. More right. building. Thank you, Brian, for the call. Well, you know, you could argue fewer taxes and also less red tape, too, because if you talk to builders in this city, in any city around the region, a lot of them will complain about the same thing. There is municipal red tape. There are delays. There are costly local costs to to get a home approved to build. I mean, Margareta, I'm sure you hear that a lot. Yeah, it's a very, very challenging situation. I mean, we hear about people trying to do bathroom renovations and uh, they're told they need to speak to an arborist, a a tree expert, uh, to (laughs) assess the impacts of their bathroom renovation. Uh, You know, that's just one example of the the red tape that we have. But the converse argument here, and it's, I think, a really strong one, uh, if we're building more without adding any new taxes, government will collect more tax that they can invest in other types of housing that the market can't provide. So uh, it doesn't only help us get more supply online, but could potentially help us, uh, you know, fix our fiscal situation. Uh, we're, you know, heavy amounts of debt as a, as a nation right now. Uh, and it can also be invested in supportive housing, below market rentals for seniors, students, working class families. Uh, so that could really be a win-win-win in that scenario. Okay, Derek in Port Coquitlam. Hi, Derek, go ahead. Hey, Mike. Um, yeah, <clears throat> man, a lot of great comments from your callers today. Um, one thing, I'm, I'm just curious if, if this guy, Paul, uh, even owns his own house. Yeah, he does. Um, okay, he does. and yeah. you know, so you know that that's good that you know he he would be part of that program. But the other thing is, you know, owning a home is not a pot of gold. It's all relative. If I sold my home, regardless of the value, and wanted to move sideways into something else, or even sold my home to rent, I I still need that equity to to move sideways. I mean, it's not yeah. it's not like it's just sitting there. I'm going to sell my house become a millionaire and then be able to live somewhere else that you know it doesn't make sense and i agree we we have to build get rid of the 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 red tape and you know we're already paying you know one percent property purchase tax on any on all mm. any house we buy so you know that tax that we're getting should stop going to uh 
you know, just the coffers. It should be going into a, a, a build program for sure. Derek, thank you for the call. Let's squeeze in one more here. John in Coquitlam. Hi, John, go ahead. Hi, yeah. Um, whatever happened to people taking on two jobs to save a down payment as well? Kids nowadays, they want everything, instant gratification, instant this, instant that. It doesn't happen. I have a small development company. Um, we've been shut down by Vancouver for so many years trying to develop rental housing. They took us from 120 units right on our last project and in three of those units it was going to be 72 were taken away because there's a tree that had to stay because it had squirrels in it who do you okay, want okay to okay squirrels? john i'm inter- i'm interested to hear the rest of that story please send me an email if you can and we maybe talk after the show mike at cknw.com because i'm always grateful to hear from people on the front line of this mike at cknw.com lots of awesome calls there margareta thank you for coming on today thanks so much mike All right, let's talk about the car market out there right now. If you're in the market for a new or used vehicle, yeah, listen up here because it can be a bit of a jungle out there. And we are hearing about supply uh, supply crunch right now uh, for new and used vehicles, too. I got Sherry Primack standing by to discuss from Car Help Canada. First, have a listen to this report here from Global News. The cost of a used Civic has probably never been higher because the demand for both new and used now because you can't get them. Economists say supply chain issues, complicated most recently by the BC port strike, are contributing in part to the shortage. I don't believe we'll go back to 2019 prices and the reason why is just that cars are more expensive to make overall. Electric vehicles are especially expensive. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Sherry Primack. Sherry is a senior consultant at Car Help Canada, and they help people purchase new vehicles. Hey, Sherry, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah, I appreciate it a lot. So let's talk about, first of all, let's talk new cars. What is the market like out there? I talked to a buddy of mine who recently got a, a hybrid RAV4. And he was thrilled with his car. Really, really nice. He had to wait a year and a half to get it, though. Are, are there still long waits to get the more popular models? Unfortunately, yes, that's the case. So hybrids, plug-in hybrids, electrified vehicles of that type are the most difficult type to get. Uh, but regardless of what type of new vehicle you're buying, most likely you are going to be faced with a very long waiting period ordering one from a dealership. At least a few months, if not several months. But in the case of extremely desirable vehicles like hybrids that have very limited supply, you could be waiting over a year. Yeah, and why is that? Because I remember back during the supply chain crunch that there were the shortage of microchips that go into these very high-tech vehicles now, but I thought we had sort of caught up on that. Hasn't that problem been largely resolved? Why is there still such a shortage? Well, it's very complicated. The supply chain issues are still a huge part of it. There is still a shortage of chips, although that has gotten better, but it's complicated by other issues as well. Uh, Other supply constrictions, uh, the port strike in BC, which restricted vehicles being imported or manufactured in Asia. Uh, And there are some other issues as well, just a general shortage of, of parts. And the demand for vehicles has not decreased. There's an enormous demand for most vehicle types, especially affordable cars and SUVs, but especially electrified vehicles like hybrids. And it's yeah. just taking a long time for manufacturers to catch up. 
Okay, let's talk about the EVs for for a minute for a second. Like, are are there still generous rebates and incentives available to get people into a new EV? Well, in Canada, there is a five thousand dollar federal rebate for full yeah. electric vehicles and some plug-in hybrid vehicles, and then some provinces like BC and Quebec also have provincial rebates that are stackable on top of that. So, yes, there are rebates for certain EVs. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about uh, the tactics for for getting a vehicle, Sherry. Like, if you're facing a a wait list, if you go onto a a new car lot right now and you're told there's a wait list, are there any kind of shortcuts around that? Like, can you buy a vehicle online, for example, and cut the wait out that way? Well, if you're shopping for a new vehicle, you definitely have to do some shopping around. Uh, The first thing you should do is look on the car manufacturer website so you can see what the baseline price you should be paying is. So, for example, if you're buying a Toyota, you can go on the Toyota website and they'll show you the pricing there. Then you should contact at least a few different dealerships in your area. Everything, Every single dealership is going to be a little bit different. Some dealers are going to charge extra fees and add-ons that other dealerships may not be charging. And some dealers may quote you a longer or shorter waiting period depending on how many vehicles they receive each month and depending on how many back orders they currently have. So it will pay off if you shop around to maybe either get a shorter wait time or get a better price. Okay, what about negotiating? I'm a, I'm a bad negotiator. I think probably most people are too if they're trying to wheel and deal, especially for a vehicle. What Do you have any tips on that? Like, Do you have to be prepared to walk? Like someone told me that once that... The only way you're going to get a great deal is if you're prepared to turn around and walk away from the deal. you gotta, you got to put that bottom line on the negotiating table. Is that true? Well, unfortunately, the old negotiating tactics no longer work because dealerships have all the leverage. Uh, they don't have any inventory, so there really isn't any negotiating like there was in the past. N- normally, a dealership will give you what their price is, and they'll tell you, take it or leave it. That's what it is. So all you can really do as a consumer in that situation is, like I said, shop around because you will find that some dealerships are going to charge far more than others, either because they're adding extra fees or they might be marking up the price of the vehicle, sometimes by thousands of dollars on a really high demand vehicle. So go with whichever dealership uh, is going to offer you the best price, closest to that manufacturer price online. And once you have a price quote from them, which by the way, you can do remotely from home, there's absolutely no need to go to the dealership. You can be doing this from home on your computer, obtaining price quotes from all the dealers in your area. Once you have that information, you have to make sure that it's all in writing when you place the order. That way the dealership has to honor the price they gave you. And when the vehicle arrives after several months, you're not going to be uh, faced with all kinds of surprises, like a huge price increase. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Like, how common is that to get that surprise? Can, are they allowed to sort of add on charges later? Well, that's the risk you face if you order a car without getting a price quote from the onset. If you just have yeah. a blank piece of paper with no price, you never know what they could charge you later on. Now, it is normal that if you're getting a car that's a year later, the following model year, yeah, the price of the vehicle might have increased, the manufacturer price. But the dealership should not be adding extra fees, markups, or add-ons that were not initially on the contract when you ordered. And unfortunately, some dealerships are doing that. 
Yeah. Um, what about what about okay? When we take a look at the price of gas right now, like you mentioned, that EVs are very popular for good reason. A lot of people want to get into an EV or a hybrid. And I can certainly understand that. For people who are looking at a gas-powered vehicle, are people downsizing? Like SUVs and trucks have been so popular, they've ruled the roost in Canada for so long. But I'm wondering if people are maybe looking at smaller, more fuel-efficient vehicles right now. Is there any evidence of that? Well, the massive demand for vehicles right now is the more affordable vehicles because the prices of cars have gone up so much that it's almost impossible to get a new vehicle for under $30,000 anymore. So the demand for these extremely uh, affordable vehicles, small compact cars, small SUVs, and hybrids, that's where the demand is in the market because that fits the budget of more consumers. Huge SUVs and huge trucks have just gotten so ridiculously expensive. Those are the ones that you're not going to have to deal with a huge wait time anymore. Speaking of Sherry Primack, Car Help Canada, what about um, leasing a, car, a new vehicle instead of buying. I had someone tell me once, never lease a vehicle. That's a, a bad consumer choice. You spend way too much. Always buy instead. But then I had a, a, another friend of mine recently told me, no, no, actually a lease is a, a good option for some people in some circumstances. What do you think? Well, there's definitely a customer for both. You have to decide if you're a short-term person or a long-term person. If you're a long-term person, you hold on to your car as long as possible, then financing or paying cash makes more sense. But if you're a short-term person, the type of person that likes to switch their car every three, four years, or maybe you own a business, you can write off the payments as a business expense, then leasing could make a lot more sense. You don't have to worry about negative equity, the value of the car dropping tremendously because you're just going to give that car back to the dealership after three, four years, and probably start over again. So it depends on your situation. There's a good case for both. Okay, what about, let's say you have a used vehicle and you want to trade in on a new vehicle. Are you better off selling your used vehicle privately to leverage a higher price, Just go through the hassle of selling it yourself, or do you do the trade-in with the dealership? Because... I mean, you never get the, the retail value in a trade-in that you could get in a used in a, in a private used sale, could you? Well, no, you're not going to get a retail value trading it in, but you will get a massive tax savings because the trade-in oh. value is deducted before HST or the sales tax is charged on the new vehicle. So you might end up getting a very similar price. Now, the key with a trade-in is that, again, just like shopping around the price of the new vehicle, you also want to shop around your trade-in. Take advantage of instant cash offer tools that are available online where you can get a real-world offer for your car. Get multiple offers from different dealerships online. Uh, Get a price from a wholesaler or an appraiser and understand what the real value of your car is. And then you can use that as leverage to get a good trade-in value with the dealership you're buying the car from. Uh, Or you could sell privately, but that's a huge hassle for a lot of people. I think using instant cash offer tools and doing research online is a much better way to go. Okay, Sherry, what about the uh, what about the used car market in Canada right now? We heard in that clip that there seems to be a bit of a crunch and shortage of used vehicles as well. There seems to be a high demand. What's your take on the used vehicle market right now? Well, unfortunately, because new vehicles have such long waiting periods, that's driven up the prices of used vehicles uh, tremendously. Now, used car prices are overinflated. 
by at least 20, 30%, if not more. So anyone shopping for a used vehicle is more than likely going to overpay. And in many cases, there's absolutely no savings when you compare the price of a two, three-year-old car to the equivalent brand new one. So I don't recommend buying used for those types of vehicles. You're going to get a better value buying a new car for a fair price. Really used cars are only for people that absolutely cannot afford to wait and need something right away. And you're going to pay a premium. Well, well, a lot of people, I think their only option might be a used vehicle if they're on a, an extremely limited budget. Do you think, like, let's say you do buy used, would you recommend you get that vehicle inspected at an independent garage and an independent mechanic before you buy? Well, if, you, if you're looking at something much older, at least 8 to 10 years old, then yeah, you will save a lot of money if that's where your budget is. And if you're buying a vehicle like that, that's outside the warranty period where you have no protection, then absolutely, you have to get an inspection by a reputable mechanic. Otherwise, there's too many unknowns, too much risk. So absolutely, getting inspections is always a great idea. Okay, what is your outlook for this market right now? Like we've talked a lot about shortage of supply and high prices right now. Do you see that sort of being the norm here going forward for quite a while or going look into next year? Is it going to improve? Well, we've already seen some improvement for the trucks and big SUVs, the less desirable vehicles that are a bit too expensive for average consumers. Chances are that for more uh, affordable vehicles, certainly hybrids, uh, the situation is not going to improve for the foreseeable future. This is going to be the norm for quite a while, at least I would say perhaps another year or two. But I think things will slowly improve for less less high demand vehicles, more regular vehicles. And we might eventually see the return of some incentives and at least shorter waiting periods. But yeah, this will be the norm for quite some time. Sherry, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. No problem, Mike. Thanks for having me. All right, let's talk about family law in British Columbia now. This impacts so many people, so many families. So we're talking divorce, separation, child custody, division of assets. Sometimes you're talking about a lot of money, especially if Vancouver real estate is involved. I've got family lawyer Scott Taylor standing by to discuss. First, celebrity divorces often in the news, including right now Hollywood star Kevin Costner. Uh, going through an expensive divorce from his wife, Christine Baumgartner. Millions of dollars on the line here. Could this be one of the most expensive celebrity divorces ever? Have a listen to this report from Fox News. Look at some of the most expensive divorces in Hollywood history. Mel Gibson tops the list, $425 million. Then Harrison Ford at $118 million. Steven Spielberg, $100 million. And in fourth place... Kevin Costner already, with his first divorce, costing him $80 million. This one, according to most legal experts, could be twice that amount. It's an expensive business. Wow. Okay, so Kevin Costner already on the list for one of the most expensive divorces ever, and he could could break one of his own records there. Let's discuss with Scott Taylor now, lawyer at the Taylor Law Group. Very pleased to welcome him. Hey, Scott, thanks for coming on today. Well, good morning. Good morning, Mike. Nice to uh, nice to be here. Uh, it's interesting. They mentioned Kevin Costner, and whether you're Justin Trudeau, uh, the prime minister, yeah. or you're Kevin Costner, if you're talking about child support, it's all about, or anything else for that matter, it's all about your income. Mm-hmm. That is, that's the key. And we have guidelines in Canada, and they have guidelines in the States. Just to give you an example, sure. if Trudeau 
using his income, his his income as prime minister. I just did a little bit of did the calculation. He has three children with Sophie. Yeah. And with those three kids, and if Sophie, it's a shared parenting arrangement because it, the income, the child support does depend on the parenting arrangements. But rather than go down, go down there, if if basically he's paying child support to Sophie based on the guidelines, he's paying about uh, on an income of three hundred and seventy nine thousand a year. He's paying about six thousand a month. Wow. But just to yeah. show you the comparison, when we're talking about celebrities like Kevin Costner. His income is pegged at twenty million a year, and he's currently paying one hundred and twenty-seven thousand dollars a month in child support, and she <laughs> wants one hundred and seventy-five thousand. Yes. I mean, really, if you've got kids, it's expensive. Oh yeah, yeah. We're talking, we're talking big money, and when you're talking in the superstar stratosphere, there, like oh, yeah. like Kevin Costner here, you're talking yeah. a whole lot of money, and it's it's interesting to see like a celebrity divorce like this is being played yeah. out in the media. But then yeah. when you have the, the very sad separation here, you know, the prime minister and his wife breaking up, that's been kept very, 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 well, very know, quiet and, and private. And, and Mike, you know, Mike, absolutely. And, and yeah. I give, regardless of political affiliations or what you think of the prime minister, yeah. what, what he did and what Sophie did, they did it the right way. They, they did it the less, the less public way. They yeah. have a separation agreement. And, I, I, you know, the separation agreement, if you can negotiate – a separation agreement, rather than drag things through the court or or through the media, that's the way to do it. And so they yeah. announced it not not during the separation, after the agreement is signed, they announce it. See that 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 is absolutely the, the classiest way to do it, not only for them but for the yeah. kids. Yeah. And and, and so I, I give them full credit, both both of them, for negotiating that, putting it in place. Whatever the arrangement is, I just wish them. I wish them the very best. But it, it does yeah. lead to discussions for everyday Canadians. Well, what am I? You know, uh, should I be getting child support? How much should I pay? How much should I be getting? <laughs> you know, in child support. Those are questions that are asked of family lawyers throughout Canada. Okay, well, let's get into some of those questions about how the sure. law works here in British Columbia. So, sure. interesting. A separation agreement. Like, what is the difference between a separation agreement and a divorce? Well. Yeah, I'm asked that question. People call me, Mike. They say, you know, I need, I want to get a divorce. How easy is it to get a divorce? How do I get a divorce? Yeah. And I go, you know what? Easy. It's the easiest thing in the world to get a divorce. But the not so easy part is getting to the divorce because what you're going to need before you get a divorce is to have either a written agreement, a separation agreement, or a court order that that deals with the children, deals with the assets deals with everything so the, the the divorce that's easy but you got to put the effort in to negotiate either negotiate maybe mediate as well an agreement that's that's the way to do it that's a separation agreement so you can be separated for 25 years but if you don't have an agreement with your spouse and the other thing this is really important when we're talking about child support mm. if if two people are in a situation, they're, they're separate, but they're not paying the proper child support, you will not get divorced. In other words, courts don't want to see you. So if, if you get divorced, put all the papers in, give them the separation agreement, and you agree on a number that isn't in compliance with the guidelines, it's going to get kicked out. It's going to get kicked out. You will not get divorced unless the numbers are correct. And that happens in a lot of situations, Mike, where parents, they come up with a number of their own. They think, look, just give me this. All I want is this much, 
They put it in a separation agreement. The court looks at it. The judge looks at it and goes, I'm going to check the guidelines. Oh, this isn't consistent with the guidelines. You're not getting divorced. So that's, okay. that's how important it is. Okay, that's important. No, speaking to family lawyer Scott Taylor. Okay, Scott, what about if you're living, you're living common law, you are not married, how long do you have to live together with your partner for it to be considered like legally basically the same as a marriage? Two years. Two Success, years, right. Successive period, two years, and, and it's similar to marriage. I mean, yeah. people, uh, if you hit that two years, and, and there are exceptions, if you have children, you're, you're basically in the glue as far as owing child support. I mean, you, you don't have to have a relationship. You know, if you are the biological parent of a child, and you are on the hook, so to speak, to pay child support. Sure. You can't, you know, people just can't walk away, ignore their responsibilities. That is it. You are there till the age of 19, not 18. A lot of people think it's 18. It's 19, unless that child decides to go to university, post-secondary education. That obligation could continue, or if the child has some disability, your obligation can continue as well. Would you say that for people who are in the sad situation where a marriage is broken down, this is, this is very common, happens to a lot of people, would your advice be rather than get into a, a bitter lawsuit, a big expensive fight, is it better to go to a mediator and try to settle things out of court? Well, you know what, I get asked that question. It's a good question, Mike. And the media, I'm a family law mediator as well, as well as a family lawyer. But here, here's the thing. The mediator is an independent individual who does not give legal advice to either party. So, so basically, if you're going to see a mediator, and, and a mediator might be a family lawyer by profession or might not, doesn't have to be a family lawyer, that person is independent. They're not going to give either party legal advice. So my advice, I think, I think mediation is, well, because I am one, is excellent. Yeah. But you have to have you have to know before the mediation, what are my legal rights? What are my legal interests? What am I entitled to? What are my obligations? Those are all questions that you should know going into the mediation, not, not after. I mean, some, some mediators you know, will, will prepare an agreement and tell the parties to go get legal advice before they sign anything. And, and the, key, the key really is not to sign anything. Mm-hmm. Not to sign anything unless, you've got, unless you sign it in front of a family lawyer who tells you this is good, bad, or ugly. Okay. That's what you okay. need to know. All right, welcome back as we continue talking family law with family lawyer Scott Taylor. Let's go to your phone calls here. John in North Vancouver. Hi, John. Go ahead. Yeah, what I'd like to know is if you meet a lady and you're going around with her for about five or six years, a little bit longer, then you decide to move in. And after two years, you're considered married. Do all the assets you had before you started with her, are they free to you? Do they belong to you? Or has she got some, uh, can she get some of that? Yeah, hmm. yeah, John, you know, John, an excellent question. Now, you, let's say you're dating, which happens, okay? Then you decide, okay, we're going to start living together. So what you need to do, or what you need to remember is that as of the date, you start cohabiting. Now, to start living together as, as in a marriage-like relationship, yeah. here's the key. You can exclude the value of any assets you bring into the relationship on that day. But here's the thing. 
unless you have an agreement, like a cohab or some other agreement, if those assets appreciate in value, she's entitled to half uh-huh. if you separate. So yeah. this means that what you should do, if you're cohabiting, you should have a cohabitation agreement, which makes it very, very clear, what did I start with? So then you just identify in writing what I started with, and then you can decide in that agreement. You can say, I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep it whether it appreciates in value or not. I'm going to keep the whole value, or, or we're going to share it. But if you don't identify what those values are at the beginning, if you separate 5, 10, 15 years later, it becomes, it becomes a real challenge. So if, if, if you are thinking of cohabiting or you're in a cohabiting relationship, get it in writing. Okay, okay, thank, thank you for the call, John. You know, getting a, like a cohabitation agreement, like you mentioned, or I guess a, I guess a prenup, I guess they're yep. becoming more popular as well, a prenuptial agreement. Yeah. You know, it's not very romantic, right? <laughs> like, it's a relationship killer. Uh, well, a lot of things are relationship killers, Mike, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so, so you can either bite the bullet at the beginning, and you know what happens sometimes? What happens mm. sometimes, it's the parents of one of these parties yes. who, who say, you will need to have this agreement in place to protect what you have. Yeah. And, and sometimes it's pressure from parents. But it's, it's a great idea. But I, I totally agree. I totally agree talking about someone, what I'm going to keep if we separate, or what you're going to keep if we separate. It, it tends to, uh, it takes the edge off. You're right. Yeah, uh, Mike, yeah, yeah. yeah. For sure. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Let's go to Drew on the line calling from Quinnell. Hi, Drew. Go ahead. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm good. Um, I'm good. I was just uh, curious if you are cohabitating for, say, three years and it goes sideways and you have your own business and that business has been yours for 15 years. Does yeah. that other spouse or partner have a right to that? Yes. <laughs> and I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what, what, what will happen is your, your equity in the business, the day that you guys start cohabiting, you get to keep that. Yeah. So you may need an expert to appraise the value of your business as of that date. And, and three years later, guess what? That will be reappraised. And if you don't have an agreement, if it's appreciated in value, she'll be entitled to an interest in that appreciated value. And it has nothing to do with the business at all. Sorry, what's that? And it has nothing to do with the business at doesn't all. Have to, doesn't have to be a shareholder. It's a family business, Drew. It's considered okay. in law. It's a, family, it's a family business, but you have an excluded property claim to the, to the right. majority of the value of the business. But, yeah, a lot of people think the same thing. It's a business that I had. She's not a director. She's not a, an employee even. It's mine. It's, I have to tell people, I'm support, it's a family business. True. thank you for that call. We just have one minute left here, sure. Scott. What happens if you get divorced, and then after the divorce, one of the partners in the marriage receives a big inheritance from, a, from a, a, like, let's say, a parent who passes away? Well, well, well. Typically, that's going to be addressed as part of if it's a separation agreement. That's wonderful. If an inheritance is considered excluded property, so okay. if if you receive an inheritance following divorce, following separation, you keep it. That's the uh, that, okay. that's the best news about getting an inheritance. Squeeze in one more. Aurora in Vancouver. Aurora, you got like thirty seconds here. Okay. Thank you. 
Um, I'm a mother and uh, I have a lot of assets. My son is living with somebody. My question is, if I pass away and he inherits my goods or you know my property and whatever, what happened with that inheritance? Is the well, wife, he gets to keep. Well, well, the, the good news. Life? Well. Well, it's a good news, bad news. The bad news is you're you're dead. But the good news is the the, the inheritance he gets to keep the inheritance. But remember what I said before: if it appreciates in value, then she's entitled to half of the appreciation, unless there's an agreement. So get your son to go see a family lawyer and get a cohabitation. That's the best thing. So even though it's an inheritance, it's even though it's an inheritance, he gets to keep. You can have a cohab with with your son and his partner that says, "I keep the inheritance. Not only do I keep it, if it appreciates in value, I keep that too." Okay. That's what you want him to do. All right. Aurora, th- thank you for the call, Aurora. Scott, uh, yeah. great to have you on here today. Well, More calls coming in. We'll just have to have you back. Thanks for doing well, it today. You know what? A wonderful idea. I appreciate the uh, appreciate the opportunity, Mike. Listen, and you know what? Just a last tip to anyone out there. Don't accept legal advice from your twice-divorced friend or your chiropractor. Get some good (laughs) family law advice from someone who knows what they're talking about. There you go. Let's talk about that canceled Drake concert on Monday night in Vancouver. Now, the Drake show went ahead as scheduled last night at Rogers Arena. The Jumbotron screen apparently repaired. So that was apparently a very exciting show last night. Uh, Drake's buddy, Travis Scott, showed up, the superstar rapper. And, of course, everyone went crazy. Everybody loved it last night. That was not the case on Monday night, however, when the Drake show was canceled at the last minute. Now, that show has been rescheduled for tonight. So the tickets for Monday night are good for the show tonight at Rogers Arena. What about the people, though? who traveled to Vancouver for that show, paid the big bucks for the tickets, the airfare in many cases, the hotels, the Airbnb. Man, I'll tell you, there are a lot of unhappy people. If they can't go to that show tonight, they had to go home and go back to work. Are they going to get their money back? I got Joey Zucran standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to this. This is some of the uh, the unhappy Drake fans outside of the canceled show on Monday. Drizzy, you gotta hook me up, buddy. I'm pissed. We found out through a tweet. It's not fair to the people who paid to get here, especially people who aren't even from here. My flight's tomorrow. I come back to Calgary tomorrow. That's just is a dumb excuse. No, I can't come on Wednesday. I'm from Alberta. I have two kids. I spent thousands of dollars just to come here. I did my full makeup and then I cried yeah. it all off. Yeah. We spent thousands of dollars just, to like, come save. here. It's like so much only over the money summer. we have. Yeah, I've been saving for months. Oh, man, lots of people saved up, and uh, they did not have a good time on Monday when the show was canceled. Let's speak to Joey Zucran now. Joey is a lawyer based in Montreal. His firm is, is pursuing a class action lawsuit about Drake ticket prices. Very pleased to welcome him. Joey, thanks a lot for coming on today. Hi, thank you for having me on. Yeah, you bet. I appreciate it a lot. Hey, Joey, you have to feel for these people, right? Like if they they travel to Vancouver to see a Drake show, the show is canceled last minute. Some of them have paid a fortune for tickets, flights, hotels. What do you think about that? I mean, they got a legitimate complaint? Absolutely. Actually, it's reminiscent of last year, July 8th, if I'm not mistaken, the weekend concert in Toronto, where our firm actually filed a class action against Rogers, 
um, for the outage, so for customers of Rogers nationally, but also for people who bought tickets and traveled from Quebec or from all around to go see the Drake concert at the Rogers Stadium in Toronto. Um, and it was cancelled last minute because of the technical issues. So I, I don't think that Rogers Arena is owned by Rogers. I think it's owned by another group. But certainly yeah. feel terrible. I know it's not just the, you know, you mentioned Airbnb hotels, but it's also airfare, parking, gas, uh, dinners and meals that go all around it. I mean, I've gone to concerts and I've saved, you know, people save up all the time. And, and to get hit with that surprise an hour before, it's unconscionable. And I absolutely think that they have an action in damages which they can pursue either by way of a claim in small claims court where they can claim all of their damages that are associated to this cancellation or, or B, by way of a class action in which one person comes forward and takes on the action on behalf of the whole group. Okay, well, you're certainly very familiar with that part of it. And when, when you take a look at the website at, at Live Nation, which, of course, own, owns Ticketmaster, uh, on the topic of refunds, it says event organizers determined refund guidelines. They are only allowed in limited circumstances. Now, you know, for people who could not go to the rescheduled show tonight, I don't know, maybe they can, maybe they've got a case for a ticket refund. But what about all those other costs you just mentioned? Airfare, parking, hotel, Airbnb. I mean, is there any precedent for people getting a refund for those costs? I mean, precedent, as I mentioned, we have a case that's ongoing that's been filed a year ago. It hasn't been heard by the court. You know, certainly as a class action, I haven't heard of any uh, precedents, but I'm sure there's tons in similar cases, for example, vacations with airlines or whatnot when trips get canceled. And yeah. I think it's a clear-cut case in law. You had an event uh, organized on this date. I planned around this event, and because of a fault of yours, no fault of my own whatsoever, I now incurred and suffered all these losses. There's also moral, you know, you're, we're, we're quantifying the actual compensatory damages. There's also moral damages. People, you know, planned the whole weekend, waited months, if not a year for this show. Uh, and the disappointment, we heard your, you know, we heard the, the fans on the clip that you played at the beginning. These fans are disappointed and there's some damages there as well that can be uh, awarded depending on, you know, the case-by-case basis there. But, you know, I think that it's, it's more than just the price of the tickets and the hotel they can get back. I think there are damages. You're reading Live Nation or Ticketmaster's website, you know, having had five, having been involved in five class actions with them, two that are actually active and ongoing. I think their customer service is terrible. Good luck trying to reach them by phone. I don't think there's actually a phone number where you can actually reach a live operator in Canada. Uh, so good luck. And by the time they get back to you regarding uh, whether you can get a refund, my guess is the show will be over already. So people are in a bit of a, a conundrum where, you know, they have to decide, do I, do I extend my trip in BC for another two days and incur another you know, $2,000 of hotel fees or whatnot. Um, and, and, you know, airline tickets to, to modify them is not free either. Or do I, or do I you know, take my chances and think, assume that Ticketmaster is going to do the right thing and give me a refund, which personally I doubt they will. Yeah. Yeah, speaking of class action lawyer Joey Zucran, would you recommend, Joey, that people hang on to, if they are in that unfortunate situation where they paid out a lot of money for this stuff, hang on to those receipts? Absolutely. So the best thing to do at this stage is to you know keep your proof. So the document, all your transactions, all your costs. And the good thing that today you know most people are either using a credit card or Apple Pay or you know internet purchases. So that's really easy to do. But if you're paying in cash, definitely keep all your receipts. Uh, you never know because even if you say, look, this is too small for me. I'm not going to pursue an individual claim on my own. It's not worth my time and effort. But one day there's a class action, and all of a sudden you get. The good news is that Ticketmaster has everybody's email. So one day you get an email saying there's been a class action, it's been resolved, and 
click here to claim and submit some you know, receipts for your damages, I would definitely hang on to them. Maybe snap some pictures with your iPhone or smartphone, email them to yourself, and then one day uh, they may be worth something. Yeah. You mentioned that you've been involved in a, a lot of legal actions ag- against Live Nation, the owner of Ticketmaster, including this proposed class action on Drake, the price of Drake show tickets on this tour, right? Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so, you know, it's not limited to the price of the tickets, and it's also not limited to Drake. It's actually, it had, you know, I think we saw the exaggeration and the limits that were pushed and the boundaries that were pushed when when it was somebody as popular as Drake. But essentially what Ticketmaster did was when they launched these tickets for sale uh, on the first day, they had everyone waiting in that famous long Ticketmaster queue. Uh, and then said there were limited number of seats available, and then started charging seven, eight hundred, nine hundred dollars for nosebleed tickets, and they qualified these tickets as platinum. So my client called me, and many class members contacted us as well to say, "Hey, I just bought what seems to be advertised, what is advertised as platinum, but what seems to be some of the worst seats in the house for eight or nine hundred dollars, and then they just announced another show the next day, which tanks the price of the first night." Do I have a case? And what Ticketmaster describes platinum seats as is as follows, and I'm just citing their website verbatim, some of the best seats in the house. And when Mm. you sell somebody nosebleed seats for $900, I'm sorry, that's fraud. That's a misrepresentation. There's no way around it. But worse, as the show goes on and after they've gouged all the real fans and the real uh, supporters of these performers who come in the first day and maybe even miss a morning of work to buy tickets, they then lower the price and often change the tickets, for the qualification of the ticket from platinum to regular, as if it wasn't regular to begin with, uh, and as if platinum has no meaning whatsoever, and then all of a sudden lower the price. So if you're a real fan and bought day one, you got screwed, excuse my language. And if you showed up you know, the day of the show or a few days before, well, you saved maybe half the price. We saw and we did the studies in Montreal for the Drake concert in Montreal, floor seats that were selling for $650 uh, regular tickets from Ticketmaster, not resale, were selling the same day of the show from Ticketmaster directly uh, for $189. And we have screen captures and we have receipts. So they, Ticketmaster abuses of its monopolistic position in the market. Uh, Maybe they have a great product. I agree it's very easy to buy and maybe very hard to compete against them. But they have become the original ticket seller. They've become the secondary marketplace. They, and they abuse and take advantage of consumers who have no choice. I won't even get into the Taylor Swift melee if, unless you ask huh. me to. But, I mean, it's, it's become a real nightmare and a struggle for, for fans. And as a parent and as a lawyer, I could say for parents and families to go to a concert. Because if you're going to go, you know, a family and two kids to a show, it's gonna, you're going to be out four or $5,000. It's absolutely obsa- obs- obscene, absurd, and unfair. Yeah, no, I think a lot of people uh, uh, would agree with you. I wonder, though, about uh, about the power of Live Nation and Ticketmaster. Like, have they ever been successfully sued in an action like this? So, you know, so we've had three three cases with them. Three of them have been settled. So, you know, depending mm. on how you define success, uh, they were settled with practice changes. I can't speak very much to them other than that the documentation is publicly available on our website, lpclegs.com. They've been settled, and we have, you know, we're restricted on, on what we could say with respect to those cases. But on the two active cases, I mean, one of them, the other one that we didn't speak about is insurance. Um, you know, they, they charge for insurance. It's not clearly disclosed. The other one is platinum tickets, which we just discussed. And I think these are two headshots. I mean, I, how do you qualify a seat 
as some of the best seats in the house when they are objectively some of the worst. I mean, you mm. could literally touch the ceiling from the section uh, where they sold platinum seats for. Some of them are even obstructed view, and they're oh. qualifying them as platinum. So, I mean, obviously it's up to a judge to decide, but I think that our chances of success are really good. And we've obtained some, I would qualify, very good settlements against Ticketmaster for the other cases. Okay, well, we're following this uh, litigation closely. Th- Joey, thank you for coming on to talk about it today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.